So, today's guest, he's the first man to hold kettlebell classes in the US. He's the first person to be certified to teach Gracie Jiu Jitsu in the US. He's a modern day nomad teacher, sort of instructor kind of person. Ladies and gentlemen, the incomparable Steve Maxwell. Steve, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> Great, Stefan. Thanks for having me on, on your uh, podcast. Yeah. So this nomad part, I remember hearing uh, years ago that you were, and I see that you're always traveling, you're always doing seminars, but I remember hearing that you were essentially living out of a caravan. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, well, d divorce can do crazy things sometimes for your lifestyle. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I had a, a, uh, a gym. Uh, it was two floors, actually. The first floor was all workout space, huge space. Okay. It had barbells, dumbbells, uh, hammer strength machines, some vintage Nautilus machines, uh, some cardio. And then the second floor was all jujitsu and submission wrestling. And it was a huge mat space. Uh, I don't know what it is in square meters, but it was 2,500 square feet. Oh, okay. Huge space. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was my little uh, mecca, my castle. And then uh, working with your significant other in your business can be pretty traumatic. So uh, we uh, once once I got divorced, we sold the gym. Uh, I pretty much gave my jujitsu school to a young Brazilian black belt. And then I took out on the road. And I always had this dream of living in a camper van. I just thought it was a really cool lifestyle. Uh, I, I, I like the, the idea of being able to have a mobile home and just drive yeah. around. And I didn't want a large RV. Uh, in the United States, the recreational vehicle or RV, very, very popular. And you see some big ones. Uh, even in Germany, you see people driving real big ones. But I wanted something small with a small footprint, and I found a uh, Mercedes van that had been converted by Westphalia, and wow, it was just so cool. So I lived in there for almost three years. Wow. Coast to coast, from, Pittsburgh, from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean and back eight times. Dude, you're way ahead of your time. That's the whole lifestyle now that people are going for the digital nomad kind of deal where you work on your blog or whatever and you just travel. It was really wild. And uh, the whole uh, digital thing kind of came late. I came into the, all this technology stuff very late in life. I didn't even have my first cell phone. It was like about 46, 47. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I never had any concept of how to use a computer or a laptop and any of that stuff. And, uh, you know, when the Apple technology came out, uh, it was perfectly tailored to a person like myself with no experience. It's so easy to learn how to use an iPhone that even a baby can do it. Yeah, and they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. I saw, I saw a little, little kid, probably not even one years old, working his way around an iPad the other day on an airplane. So it's perfect for me iPad and iPhone, I became uh, digitalized. And when I realized that you can make money on the internet, if there was no turning back after that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, digital nomad before there were such a thing. That's awesome, man. So uh, you don't live in the in the caravan anymore. Now you have an actual home or uh, is it mostly hotels? You do not. <laughs> no, I'm staying right now at uh, the Marriott, Marriott uh, Residence Inn. 
and Sarajevo, uh, Bosnia. Oh, well, you can do worse than that. <laughs> Last week I was in uh, the Marriott Cologne. So uh, I, 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 I buy my time between either hotels or Airbnbs. I stay in a lot of Airbnbs also. Okay. So how do... Because of rewards points and because of my frequent flyer miles, and, you know, you get all these reward points for, you know, the credit card companies, all that stuff, uh, we, we, we can stay very inexpensively in some pretty nice hotels also. So Really? Lifestyle, living... So, yeah, I have no home, apartment, condominium. Everything I own is pretty much in one 30-liter Tom Bin bag. <laughs> Dude, that's so awesome. But how do you sustain yourself? I mean, I know you do the seminars, and I know you've uh, released a ton of videos. Um, is that basically how you uh, make it through the, with the income, or how do you do it? I do online personal training. I have over oh. 50... 50 clients. Uh, a lot of people don't need a physical trainer. They're, they're motivated enough to, to work out. What, they're just confused about what to do. Yeah, yeah. They're looking for programming, programs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, I, I have a systemized approach, and a lot depends, of course, on a person's goal as to what type of program they'll get. But a lot of my people are businessmen, businesswomen, uh, professionals, and many of them are very time crunched, and they just want to weed through all this vast information out there to figure out what to do. Uh, I make a good living, and then they send me. Uh, of course, you know the, the obesity epidemic has spread far and wide. It's pretty bad in the UK and the USA, and even in Germany and China. Uh, yeah. Wow, people are really getting quite uh, uh, overweight. And fat. Yeah. A lot of people are very confused about diet and what to eat, what not to eat. So, I uh, I, I have my own uh, ideas on diet. At 66 years young, I'm still really lean. I still got a <laughs> still got the six pack, and uh, I I help people sort it all out. Dude, I I remember, uh, and this was years ago when you did. Uh, I guess there were DVDs, uh, and. Uh, you you always did these instructional videos with your shirt off and it was cool because you were 50 plus with abs but now you're still <laughs> with the abs how do you sustain your body well obviously you know as a person ages that you you will lose your muscle mass and sure. your size and it gets harder and harder to stay lean um with the loss of muscle mass, uh, the metabolism slows down. Sure. What sets your metabolism, obviously, is your active tissue, which is your muscle. Yeah. So, you know, you, the, the idea is to sustain it for as long as possible. And uh, I just am very disciplined. I'm a very disciplined person. I, I just know what the ramifications are for not being disciplined, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm not willing to, to suffer the consequences of not being disciplined. So that keeps me pretty much straight. I want to get into all your training and all that stuff, but first, uh, I think this is such an interesting thing. Uh, you're talking about the discipline of eating and uh, while you're living essentially on the road, how are you able to find uh, good food all the time? And is that, <clears throat> sorry, is that something that's difficult to find good food? Well, you know, in Europe, it's very easy to find good food. 
Uh, and of course, I could thank my my girlfriend. I travel with my my young girlfriend. I call her my young teen. Yeah. Uh, she she's uh, 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 twelve years younger than myself. She is actually the age of my kid sister. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I had a young sister. I was I was already like twelve, almost thirteen when my sister was born. And Teresa is about the same age. And she really helped me a lot. She knows a lot about training and nutrition herself, and uh, she really uh, takes care of me when we're on the road. She does all the buying of foods and so forth, and it's not as hard to do as you think. The the main thing is uh, I try to stay out of restaurants. As okay. Uh, we go to grocery stores. Uh, we try to stay in places that have kitchens or at least a little kitchenette. So we can prepare our own food. The majority of my diet, the base of my diet is fresh produce, fruits and vegetables. So I try yeah. to get a, a good leafy green salad every day. And I try to have a nice uh, uh, variety of fresh fruits, uh, preferably in season and preferably locally grown. You know, what would be in the area? It makes no sense for me. Uh, where are you at? You're in Sweden, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It makes no sense for a person to go to Sweden or let's say a Nordic Swede, a Viking. Yeah. Ban- bananas and pineapples or papaya. It's no. stupid. There's beautiful fruits that grow right in Sweden. So that's yeah. not what it is. You know, cherries and I, I, I'm imagining apples and plums. Yeah. Uh, all grow. Maybe pears. You know, blackberries, you know, different berries. That would be the native fruit of where you're at. So where, whatever country I go to, whether it be Russia or China or Australia, I'll look to see what's locally produced. And I tried to buy that in. Uh, I tried to buy that and, and eat that. Well, that that's a uh, has a different benefit as well. I mean, you actually get to experience the culture in a different way. I think I never yeah. thought of it that way. <laughs> just just it just makes sense to eat what's locally produced in your area. Yeah. And you know, I have Nordic ge- genealogy, so I would try to eat like my ancestors as close as I can without going too crazy. You know, there's also modern constraints and so forth but you know for the most part fruits and vegetables and i like various uh, meats and proteins uh i'm not a vegetarian or a vegan so i'll eat uh, chicken uh, fish eggs uh, occasionally beef uh, i'll get deer or antelope if i can occasionally uh rabbit uh you know simple foods like that and then as far as carbohydrates uh i like raw honey uh okay also will occasionally eat grain-based foods, usually uh, porridge, oats, uh, or possibly barley or spelt. Okay. Yeah. But that's that's usually a minor part of my diet. I'll only have a starch meal like that, maybe uh, one out of every uh, once every two days or so. So, so if uh, when you work with your online clients, you help them with their diet too, or is it just the training? Or no, no, uh, diet. Uh, diet. I followed the work of a fellow by the name of Dr. John Tilden. Yeah, it was the turn of the century American physician, and even though much of the information he wrote is more than a hundred years old, is this as true today as it was back then? Tilden. Uh, 
railed against the modern medical drug uh, industry. And he saw, uh, he saw this, this new wave of using drugs to suppress symptoms as being very bad. And he, he believed that uh, through diet and fasting, a person could heal themselves of virtually any illness. And he, he understood the cause of illness in the first place, which is innervation. Innervation and exhaustion and tiredness of the system. And a lot of it is based on how efficient your digestion and your digestive system is. So he would steer people to very simplified diet. So you're not overloading your system. And he had tremendous success in healing people from so-called incurable diseases. I think there's a lot of people going in that direction today. Uh, I mean, it definitely started uh, with the low carb, which is not anything new whatsoever. But where they essentially wanted, I mean, it's it's a diet for diabetes, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. And, and I'm not saying that you have to go uh, low carb or anything like that. No, no. The key, the key is not to overload your digestive system by mixing too many foods in one meal. Keep it simple. You know, yeah. call it crowded nutrition. People are eating everything and then a big sugary dessert on top. No wonder they feel awful. Oh, so so the actual food interfere with each other, so to speak, or more or less. Yeah. When you just put too much stuff in your stomach, you you really slow down your digestion, and sure. basically your whole immune system uh, and so forth is all based on gut health and how good you are at breaking down and digesting your food, and when you impair your digestion, you get a whole bunch of negative symptoms which modern doctors try to suppress through drugs you know like for example inflammation it's yeah usually a sign of a person's gut health isn't so good so what's the doctor do they'll give them some type of anti-inflammatory rather than getting in there and trying to find out what is the source of the inflammation they give them anti-inflammatory drugs that's crazy yeah yeah why not just get to the source okay what's causing it oh i see You're overeating. You're overweight. You're, you know, you're mixing way too much food. You can't digest it. You're constipated. Whatever, you know, they're not looking at these things. You know, I see that so much in so many areas of society. Actually, that you're you you're rather going to treat the the symptoms than the cause. I see it in training. I see it definitely in uh, medication and everything. And that's, I mean, you're not you're not getting anywhere when you're doing that. You need to get to the cause. So for your listeners out there, if they want to read more about this, uh, Children's Classic book, he wrote uh, hundreds of articles and newsletters. He wrote several books, but his classic is Toxemia Explained. Okay. Toxemia is a state where the body becomes uh, toxic through poor digestion and poor elimination. And you get a toxic buildup, and this this is the source of almost all disease. You clean that up, and your body's immune system can pretty much handle anything, really. So uh, Toxemia Explained is in a free PDF, and if people go online, they can find this, Dr. John Tilden. 
I will find the link and I will post the link with the episode because this is good stuff. It's a wonderful book. And like I said, free of charge. That's great. Okay. Steve, let's get into some training because right before we started to record this, I told you that I've been following you since shit. I don't know when. It's been years since ever uh, I first started strength training. And back then I was only doing bodyweight training. And uh, nowadays it's, again, you were a pioneer because nowadays it's huge. You have these street workouts and all this stuff, but that didn't really exist to the same extent back then. No, it didn't. Uh, that that was kind of like, it started as kind of a U.S. phenomenon. Yeah. A young men that had been incarcerated in the prisons. And when they were released, many of these guys were poor, uh, having trouble finding jobs. They couldn't afford gyms. And they would just go and use the prison yard workouts out of doors, which I thought was pretty cool. But, heck, I've been doing that stuff since the uh, 1960s, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I I think the first stuff that I found, that wasn't so much the whole uh, you see today, which is very inspired by gymnastics. People want to do front levers, back levers, they want to do muscle ups and all that. The first stuff uh, that I remember seeing from you and uh, guys like Mike Mahler was, uh, I think actually comes from martial arts, like Hindu squats, Hindu push-ups, all this stuff. Well, I, uh, my own training history started when I was a 10-year-old boy. Uh, I got very interested in wrestling. It was one of the few sports I was quite good at right from the get-go. And my father, in an effort to help me, uh, bought me a, uh, a barbell from York Barbell Company for my birthday. Yeah. I, I started lifting in the, in the basement using the old York Barbell courses. And uh, from there... Um, I discovered the Arthur Jones uh, high-intensity training philosophy in sure. the 70s. And I had great results. This whole idea that machines are not functional is complete silliness. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Anything that makes you stronger is functional. Sure. People have made a big mistake thinking somehow that you got to mimic uh, work movements or sports movements with your strength training, but nothing could be further from the truth. Anything that makes you stronger is going to make you more functional. And because my sport was wrestling, wrestling is a very realistic sport. You can feel what works immediately when you get on the mat. Yeah. It's, a, you know, you, you have mono a mono, you know, uh, muscle versus muscle, skill versus skill. So I, I had very good success with the, the old Nautilus uh, high intensity training. And I stayed with that for, for quite a while, the high intensity training system. And uh, it was only later that I started to explore uh, wrestling cultures. I had got involved with the Gracie brothers in Gracie Jiu Jitsu. Uh, some people are confused between Gracie Jiu Jitsu versus Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yeah. Gracie family were, were the people that pretty much. Uh, created what we know as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to this day, but they put a strong emphasis on free fighting and a strong mm -hmm. emphasis on self-defense. And most Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guys today know nothing about self-defense. If they if they got attacked on a train with a knife, like you read about now and again, they yeah. don't know what to do. But in the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu I learned, I know how to take a knife from somebody. 
So which uh, which of the brothers were these? Because there were like six of them, or uh, Master Elio Gracie was the was one of five brothers that originally learned from a Japanese immigrant by the name of Maeda. Right. Elio Gracie himself didn't actually learn directly from Maeda. His older brother did, and his older brother taught him. But of the five original brothers, uh, Elio was the one that had the most talent. And he also was the most uh, talented teacher. And so Elio then created uh, what later became known as Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. It, it was basically coined by his oldest son, Horian Gracie, who brought this style of Jiu-Jitsu to the U.S. Elio right. had five sons. Horian, the oldest. Helsing Gracie uh, was the second. And then there mm -hmm. was Hickson. Uh, there was uh, Hoyler. Uh, Holker and Hoyce and Hobbin, Hobbin Gracie, who teaches in Spain. Okay. I got, I trained with all the brothers. Uh, I was Hoyce Gracie's uh, strength and conditioning coach for his first three UFCs. Uh, I trained, you know, with, with uh, all, all of them. I actually got my uh, brown belt from Hoyce and Horion uh, when I won the Pan American Championships in Miami. And then I got my black belt from the second brother, uh, Helson. So I kind of feel like I... You, know. <laughs> you made the rounds. <laughs> Dude, I didn't know that you uh, were the strength and conditioning coach for uh, Hoyce. I actually had that second UFC 2 on VHS. And man, I was sold. I, I'm not going to hate on MMA today because I watch it every now and then. But I thought it was so cool back then because you had a sumo wrestler fighting a jiu-jitsu guy or a karate guy you know it was style versus style and now in those days there was no mixed martial arts sure basically it was the brainchild of hori and gracie and i was one of the original investors in the ufc i put uh -huh. uh, I, I invested my ex-wife and i put our money into it we were ringside for all those original fights and horian wanted to showcase the efficiency of jiu-jitsu in mono e mono fights. And he also wanted to demonstrate what happens if you don't know how if you don't know how to fight in the ground. The saying was if you don't know how to fight in the ground, you don't know how to fight. Right. He wanted to show that hey man, a good jiu-jitsu man, even a little guy, if he gets you down, you're kind of done. And so he he thought, well let's put everyone in in a big cage with no rules. And there were no rules. No. Shots were allowed. Hair pulling was allowed. Uh, everything went. Strikes to the back of the spine, to the neck. There was no round system or anything. No rounds. Kicking when the guy was down, stomping at the guy. I mean, you could do pretty much anything. Spiking was, the guy, yeah. the guy up and dump him on his neck. I mean, it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal, but I loved it. The barbarian in me loved it. <laughs> Oh, and, and the the big thing was no gloves. Yeah. Oh, you know, you can't just get some wrestler, some big guy who can just start winging punches without suffering, breaking his hands. Sure. And so the martial arts world for the first time was exposed to what really works versus fantasy. All the fantasy was taken out. 
I saw I saw this change on such a huge scale. There was this uh, Swedish fighter magazine, and before MMA, there were the covers and the stories were all about some mysterious chi and uh, some sensei who had this great power. And then MMA came in, and it was all about well, here's what actually goes on in a fight. <laughs> so you put two guys in a cage and you lock the door, and you basically say, hey, there's no time limit. You're going to go until someone gives up. Yeah. Or someone's incapacitated. You suddenly saw what worked. And he purposely, uh, Horion, chose, he could have chosen anyone in his family. He purposely chose Hoist because Hoist was relatively non-athletic. He was very mild-mannered, very friendly, funny guy. He was very young. um, And he was weak. He was not strong. And he was pretty skinny. I know because I was his trainer. Yeah. I did my best to make him as strong as I could, but he had very little genetic potential for a muscular size. Some people just don't have the genetics. He did have good genetics for flexibility, had great genetics for muscular endurance, but not, not strength or power. He didn't have a fast twitch muscle fiber in his body, really. So, And uh, to the listeners here, if you've never uh, wrestled a match in your life or competed in some sort of grappling sport, what Steve mentioned earlier about these people being strong, they are really strong. If you try to, you, I don't care how many barbells you've lifted, if you try to move a top wrestler, it's, he's not going to budge. Here, here's the thing about this type of strength training. You see, a lot of people are very confused about demonstrating strength versus building strength. Yeah. A lot of guys will try to train for this sport like a strength specialist, a powerlifter, an Olympic weightlifter, and so forth. You know, using the old Russian system. Uh, you know, of, of course, there's systems, you know, the Bulgarian system. They, that works great if you want to be a competitive weightlifter. But the, the, this type of training does not transfer well to, let's say, a combat sport like MMA or to submission wrestling or to jiu-jitsu or to judo. And it's a big mistake people make trying to train, you know, like strongman lifts or, or training like a strength specialist. It just doesn't work. I mean, there is some transfer. There's transfer. Anything you do that makes you a bit stronger is going to transfer to an extent. But the part that transfers is the strength. All the skills involved with, with, with learning all these different lifts, the, yeah. the skill doesn't transfer at all. No, no. So that begs the question, how would you train someone for, let's say, uh, jiu-jitsu or uh, MMA or any type of combat sport? How would you train them? Well, the single most important factor in these sports is skill. And the only way to get that is do a lot of time in the mat, in the ring, in the cage. You, you, there's no getting away from. you got to spend the majority of your time perfecting your skills. Now, because it is uh, a sport uh, pitting uh, strength to strength, you try to learn to use as little strength and energy as possible and make the other guy work as hard as possible. Yeah. Part of the, that's part of the skill. And then as far as actually <clears throat> increasing uh, the ability of the muscle to contract with more force, uh, I, I'm very much in favor of single-set high-intensity training because I don't want to uh, have my guy spending 
hours in the weight room when he needs to be on the mat. I mean, there's there's a lot of top guys that don't even lift weights at all that that are killing it in in MMA and jiu-jitsu. Marcelo Garcia, for example, one of the best submission wrestlers and jiu-jitsu guys in the world, never even lifted weights. He was that skilled. When you're talking about singles at high intensity training, I, I suppose you're on the Arthur Jones scale there. So intensity in this case is not the weight, but uh, actually going close to failure. Yeah, it's the effort. Yeah, yeah, the efforts. A lot of people get confused with the term intensity. They think it's a certain percentage of your one rep max. Uh, when I when I use the term intensity, I'm talking about effortfulness, how sure. effort it is, and. There has been study after study by Schoenfeld and Fisher. They've done meta-analysis. There's almost no difference whatsoever between one, three, five sets. So okay. I have a fighter that needs to be spend the majority of his time on the mat, and I prescribe, let's say, three or four sets of an exercise, which does work. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It all works. But... Now he, he has to spend four times the amount of time in the gym, right? Yes. Four times the work as opposed to a single set. Now he's spending four times the amount of time in the gym when he should be on the mat perfecting his skill. So since there's very little difference between one set and five sets, why not do the minimal effective dose? Yeah. Get in the mat and do what you need to do. Now, here, here's here's the thing that confuses people. If you try to use the single set training to become a weightlifter, let's say because you want to build a big bench or you want to be able to do 25 pull-ups, it wouldn't work so well because when you are training with the idea of exercise as the goal, in other words, I want to be good at an exercise. I want to be good at lifting a certain amount of weight or I want to be good at uh, performing a certain amount of repetitions when that's the goal well then you have to practice the lift as a skill i was just gonna say that 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 actually ties in with your example of a fighter because the for the fighter the skill is the sparring but in the case of a weightlifter the skill is actually lifting the weight that's correct for example yeah. uh my my daughter uh savannah is the Pennsylvania State powerlifting champ. And she's lifting some really big weights for a small girl. Uh, she's squatting like 335 pounds. Wow. I don't know how many kilos that is, but she only weighs uh, about 150 pounds. So that's Yeah. Wow. wow. She, she's stronger than her old dad. Man, I couldn't demonstrate a squat. <laughs> you know, she's, she's deadlifting about the same. And she's bench pressing over 200 pounds, which is what, like more than 98 kilos. So... You know, that's that's a strong girl. That's really good for a girl, yeah. And she can still do chin-ups. Yeah. The fact that she has a, a very large uh, uh, hips and thighs, she can still pull her own body weight and do a half dozen chins. So she's very, very powerful. With her program, she must practice the weight as a skill. She needs multiple sessions a week, and she needs multiple uh some maximal sets to practice to 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 get that groove of lifting the bar in the particular pattern. But you see, if she was to suddenly change her mind, say, hey, dad, I want to train for judo 
or jujitsu or something, I'd say, well, this this type of lifting is is not nearly as applicable as uh, the high intensity training model. I would put her on like uh, eight to a dozen exercises covering the whole body and have her lift like uh, once or twice a week, depending on how many sessions on the mat she would get. That's how I would train her. Remember, remember in, th- in sports like MMA, judo, jiu-jitsu, <clears throat> you, you want to be as light as possible and be as strong as possible. You sure. As light and lean as possible while maintaining as high strength as possible. And you don't really need to work out that often. Because remember, you spend a lot of time on the mat, so your muscles are being used any way and, uh, every day anyway, you know, wrestling, yeah. boxing and all that. I mean, you want the, the, perhaps to have the strength to do a big bench press, but you don't want the bench press for the bench press itself. Exactly. So you want it to transfer. Now, there have been some guys that have been successful uh, using heavy, low rep sets to maintain uh, some fairly big lifts. Because some guys like to combine, and that certainly works. Listen, it all works. Everything works. Gymnastics works. Powerlifting works. Uh, kettlebells work. Uh, you know, lifting sandbags work. Isometrics, no movement at all. It all works. You know, within about three to five years, everything brings you to about the same point anyway. Within three to five years, you're going to pretty much hit your genetic peak. And then you're not going to be very much progress. Anyone that's been lifting, how many years have you been lifting, Stephen? Oh, I don't even remember. Yeah, so, <laughs> and, and, and your PRs are few and far between. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you've already not even able to make your old PRs anymore. I mean, I'm getting old. Well, that, that that's what happens to everyone. You know, yeah. nothing to be afraid of. No. The, the, the point is, if every type of training brings you to about the same point anyway, why not choose the training that takes the least amount of time and has the least amount of wear and tear in the body? And that's another point I wanted to make. You see, I'm not saying that high reps don't work. They sure do. I did them for years. I know they work. But the problem is the wear and tear on the body over time. That's why I've stopped all kettlebell training. I don't swing maces or clubs anymore. I found my elbows and shoulders and my low back was starting to wear out. And I still like to get in the mat a little bit. And I was beginning to have aches and pains. And it wasn't just me. I mean, some of the early pioneers. For example, you've heard the name Dan John. Sure, sure. He's had double hip replacement surgery. He had to have his hips completely replaced. What does that tell you about the type of training he's talking about? It's not sustainable. Pavel Setsolin had double elbow surgery. What does that tell you about the type of training? And I can just go on and on with a whole litany of guys that were slamming and banging themselves around with all these kettlebell snatches. I mean, think of it this way, Stephen. You know, tennis players swing a tennis racket that weighs what? Maybe 300 grams? Yeah. And they end up with acute elbow tendonitis? Look at golfers like Tiger Woods who had multiple back surgeries just swinging a damn golf club. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen when you start throwing 24 kilograms over your head repeatedly, day after day, week after week, 
year after year. Anyone that doesn't think they're going to wear out their joints is just kidding themselves. Yeah, I mean, that repetitive stress it, from whatever you do. I mean, that look at runners. You can look at rowers. If you keep doing the same thing over and over, same motion, something's got to give. Something's got to give. So for that reason, I saw the writing on the wall. I said, you know what? I don't need this. I'm going to go back to a way I used to train. I'm going to go back to slow, high-tension reps. Uh, I, I'm going to minimize any kind of momentum. Uh, I also started incorporating mono-isometrics. Uh, if people think that isometrics don't work, just look up Alexander Zass. He was a circus strongman. He was a German back uh, <clears throat> around, around uh, World War One. This guy was enormously strong, and he primarily just did isometrics. Bruce Lee was a huge fan of isometrics. Henry Wittenberg, a lot of people never heard that name, was an American wrestler that won a silver medal in Stockholm, Sweden. No, wait, he won the gold in Stockholm, Sweden, during the Olympics, and won a silver medal in the London Olympics. He trained primarily with isometrics. He did some lifting, but primarily ISO. So there's a long history of people that have used them. And the reason I'm talking about it is it's a great way for people to train if, they, if they've had injuries, joint trauma, uh, and so forth. If they want to still stay strong, or may, maybe they're hurt right now, and they can't do normal weight training. Well, you can do isometrics, even if you're hurt. Yeah, let's talk a bit about that. But first, let me explain to listeners who might not know what isometrics is. It can take a few different shapes. You can uh, pull or push against an immovable object, or uh, you can essentially do post work, which would be a type of isometric, I suppose, depending on your terminology. Uh, So it's there is very little motion going on in the joint. In fact, there's no, there's none, right? There's two major categories. The first category is overcoming isometrics. This is where you're holding a measurable weight. Imagine if you had a barbell and you held it right at the 90 degree elbow angle in a curl. You're just holding it. Yeah. And eventually your biceps get so tired, the bar would just go down. A lot of people don't realize, but the power rack in every gym everywhere was originally built for yielding isometrics. That's true. By the York Barbell Company. That's right. Olympic weightlifting. And they used to hold the bar against the upper pin and then have the lower pin set a couple inches below. And then they would hold the bar and time it. And they would. And in those days, the isometrics were held just for a short time. Then there's a type of isometric called uh, overcoming isometrics. Overcoming isometric is where you're pushing and pulling against an immovable object. For example, Alexander Zass used chains. He used chains. And you would pull against these immovable objects. and, 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 And there's no mechanical work taking place. All the work is metabolic. In other words, you're working really hard. And it's shocking even how your heart rate will elevate and your respiration. And you you can get quite a cardiovascular workout not even moving a muscle. That's absolutely true. Everyone thinks you have to do all this fast, explosive work. 
to get a cardio workout, you don't have to move a muscle to get cardio work. And it's, it's a real boon for, let's say, you wanted to train your mom who has arthritic knees, you know, and yeah. walking is out of the question. Uh, well, you, you could give her a series of overcoming uh, uh, isometrics and have her do one after the other, and she could actually get uh, a good cardio response as well as training every muscle in her body without any danger because there is no movement. The only, the only downside, of course, you got to be very careful of blood pressure. Yes. Blood pressure will spike, especially if you don't know how to breathe. You've got yes. to breathe with this stuff or you can, uh, you, you can actually uh, you can harm yourself, especially yes. if you have a history of heart disease or blood pressure. Yeah, you got to think about it like this because some people question if isometrics work. I can tell you they definitely do. I've used them a lot. I've used them with top power lifters to break through plateaus. It, it works. And the key in when it comes to that area is that you can hold a, a, a preferably a weak point uh, for a long amount of time with very little weight but actually putting out maximum effort. You're correct. Uh, weightlifters have used it forever. Sure. You've probably heard of West Side Barbell and yeah. Simmons. He uh, that's always now. There's another example of unsustainable training. Poor Louie can barely walk anymore. Yeah. So you know, people have to realize the damage that this type of sport does. Some yeah. people don't care. They say, "Hey, look, I'm, I only live once. Fuck it, I'm going for it." <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. If that's your thing. Some of these Icelandic strongmen and so forth, you know. Uh, yeah, that, but they have short yeah. lives, and you know, the, the, sometimes you end up in a lot of pain. It's like NFL football players that play gridiron football in the U.S. Yeah, these big, giant, fast guys. Uh, hey, they're willing to live on the wild side, and you know, get all the acclaim and glory and so forth. And they're willing to, uh, you know, but sometimes when you're young, you don't realize the sacrifice you're going to pay when you when you become. I don't think any young person, I'm, it doesn't matter how many times they get told by the older generation, and I'm not the exception. I, I, I didn't believe a word. No, age is just a number. No, it's not. I mean, at some point, the body is going to start reacting differently to things. Well, it begins to betray you as it, as it will break down. As, as my grandfather said, no one gets out of here alive, Steve. <laughs> That's true. My, my goal is just, you know, Sustainable training. Uh, obviously, you know, even even though I did play a lot of hard boy sports and so forth, uh, I realized I, I had to ch change things up because uh, I, I was going to head into a lot of pain. So no, no joint replacements, no surgeries. Almost everyone I wrestled with in the late 60s, early 70s have had knee replacements, hip replacements, shoulders. I've, I've been pretty lucky. I, I kind of dinged up the shoulder a bit. But other than that, uh, I'm still pretty spry and pretty mobile. So it's because I changed my system. I remember years ago I was watching a, a DVD, I think, with you and was it Mike Mahler and Steve Cotter? I think it was called The Boys Are Back in Town or something like that. Does that ring a bell? We had all uh, left, left Dragon Door about the same time. Right, right. We were the core of Dragon Door. And yeah. a bit of a falling out there with uh, the Dragon Door people, yeah. Ken and Pavel. So Mike thought it would be kind of fun to get all the old Dragon Door guys that had left 
and get everyone together in Las Vegas and put on a uh, strength uh, uh, seminar. And it, it was done at Mark Felipe's place, who's a famous American, world's strongest man uh, competitor. Yeah. At his place. And that, I, I remember, I, the reason I bring it up is because I think that's one of the first times I really heard someone pay a lot of attention to mobility because I think your part was a lot about mobility, wasn't it? Or am I mixing this up? No, no, the whole thing was pretty much mobility. Yeah, so, and I remember you said something like, this is really a fountain of youth or something like that. It's something that always stuck with me. I mean, I haven't seen this in years, but it still stuck with me. Uh, is that something you still work a lot on? Yeah, I do. Uh, it originally came from uh, Russian martial arts. And some people refer to it as the Russian Slavic health system. And there was a series of exercises called the biomechanical exercises. And they were, I don't know, I don't think they're invented, but they were certainly promoted by uh, Alexei Kadashnikov, who is one of the fathers of modern uh, Russian military martial arts. He was a military guy. And he came up with this fighting system. Uh, this is not Sambo. It is no, okay. No, no, this is a different system that was taught to the GRU, uh, KGB guys, and it was only s certain elite fighting forces that originally learned this system. It's based on breath, but it's based on a very old system of Slavic Russian martial arts that goes back to the 4th century. And uh, breath is, you know, like the Chinese had the Shaolin monks, yeah. the Christians had their Christian monks, and yeah. developed this fighting style to uh, fight the enemies of Christendom. And, but it survived through hundreds and hundreds of years. And there was these mobility exercises uh, for keeping the joints healthy and supple. And many of them were actually martial arts moves. But they also happened to be very good exercises. It looks very similar to Chinese Qigong. Uh-huh, okay. Do you have a video of that that you sell on your website or? Uh... No. Yeah, the uh, the the uh, encyclopedia of uh, joint mobility, and I, I made a very shortened version because most people just don't have that much time. I did the give me five mobility series, just very simple, and I and I do combine uh, elements of the Chinese system also, which I've studied. I've looked very closely at Qigong. Yeah, uh, really good implications for people. Uh, I had uh, a guy in China, a good friend of mine, Stanley Tam, who has been teaching me uh, various Qigong. I didn't want, I, you know, I didn't want to completely convert to this whole uh, Qigong. Another ter a term for it is called Taoist yoga, the Taoist. And uh, but I thought there was many, many excellent movements in their system, and it's interesting because. Even in Russia, uh, they have combined many elements of the Chinese system in with their movement system also. They share a common border. You know? They've been fighting back and forth across that border for centuries. So it, it's only natural that they would borrow from each other's systems. Yeah, sure. Uh, you see today people borrow from everywhere as well. I mean, yoga has, well, it's been for years now, but... Uh 
yoga has been something like oh I, i'm so stiff i need to do yoga which is kind of weird <laughs> to me but <laughs> because yoga is a much bigger system than just fighting off stiffness if you know the history of yoga well it's all uh, based on uh, 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 ayurveda which is yeah. original uh the, the original medical system and uh it, you know the actual postures of yoga is just a little tiny part there's eight limbs to yoga and that's just one that's just one eighth of the system the rest is you know all sorts of uh you know diet and meditation and yeah and and you know people get very confused about that and 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 there is a lot of historical evidence to support that that you vikings are the ones that taught the indians all the modern postures really Oh yeah, now, I'm interested. Where did you? The, the Danes and the British gymnastic system. You know, they're occupied by the European powers, the Indians, for years, and they introduced British gymnastics. You know, the the, uh -huh. the Germans, the the Danes, the Swedes. You guys had a very developed uh, physical culture system, and many of these exercises were introduced to the Indians. And Krishnamacharya took and Indianized many of these movements and postures and created what is uh, you know, known as modern yoga. But it, there's no real history of a lot of these movements. For example, the sun salutation is really a relatively recent invention. That did not exist you know, thousands of years ago. And that's the most basic thing today. If you look at the Mysore Palace, the drawings on the wall, they show only just a few basic seated postures because the real purpose of yoga was to align the spine so that you could sit in meditation and get in touch with your higher self, you know? Yes. Your true, your true self. You're not your body. Yeah. That, that's going to go away. You have a, a part of you that's universal and, and uh, uh, it, it's everlasting, you know? Sort of like yeah. sense that energy can be neither created nor destroyed. So yeah. energy that, that makes Stefan or Steve Maxwell, that will be here forever. So, oh shit, beware world. The whole idea of 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 uh, of the yoga was to get in touch with that, the higher realms of one's consciousness through meditation, and they you know they had the breathing component to it. Uh, they did have postures, but that was more to make you comfortable in the seated. Uh, meditation position, and then they had a whole dietary regimen, and you know, just all sorts of things governing every aspect of the life. Basically, rules of health. And it, it, it's only thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's really interesting, actually, because uh, I studied uh, uh, all kinds of religions at the university years ago. So when yoga became such a the mainstream thing that everyone did for mobility i'm like wait a minute that's that's not yoga you're going to see someone who might do yoga poses but that's not yoga nope yeah <laughs> uh, my i i've had i've had some uh very high level yoga instructors in my day and they used to just kind of laugh in fact they sneer and they say yeah that's like uh, american housewife yoga or <laughs> Uh, <laughs> real yoga is a complete and total lifestyle yeah so that concludes part one of my interview with steve maxwell 
I will have him back next week and we have a lot of things to discuss. So come back and I'll see you soon. Ciao.